So assigning space is an actual reenactment of what would happen if we were to receive an extraterrestrial signal and possibly an extraterrestrial message. Assigning space is really my brainchild, as, as, as they say. So I initiated, but also it's very much a vision that I wanted to create, to take from the academia, from science fiction books, from science fiction films into reality. Welcome to another exciting episode of Scientific Imagination and A Sign in Space. I'm thrilled to present the second installment of our special podcast series, where we delve deep into the remarkable project known as A Sign in Space, a project in which a sign from space was sent to Earth, and as we speak, people from all over the world have joined the Discord channel in a joint attempt to crack the code. Created by interdisciplinary artist Daniele De Paulis, this project has captured the imagination of many. And in this podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing the talented team behind this groundbreaking art sci endeavor. My name is Daniela De Paulis. I'm an artist and I work across disciplines. And my latest project is called A Sign in Space. As an artist, I think the compulsion we have as an artist is to create to make these imaginary scenarios landscapes objects tangible visible perceivable so i had this imagination of a scenario of what would happen if we were to receive an extraterrestrial signal and possibly an extraterrestrial message and i i thought this could be really interesting to just create this scenario which potentially could be extended to any type of societal collaboration. So in this case, we are using SETI infrastructure, a SETI concept, but really you could use this model of global theater for addressing a lot of other questions about humanity and foster this global collaboration, global interpretation. So I think these type of projects and art in general can help fostering that kind of international conversation and cultural exchange and learn gradually how to also work and communicate as one global group of people. So you, of course, need an object of conversation and for me, this was a very radical imaginary scenario to have these extraterrestrial signals suddenly arriving to Earth. And I think people I collaborated with, they really connected with this imagination I created. So um, the reason why all the scientists decided to collaborate, it's, I think, mostly because they could very much imagine these and so in this case, the role of the imagination was really pivotal, was without having this drive, it would have been, I think, impossible to bring together so many researchers from so many renowned facilities, especially because also it costs money for them to host this project, to offer telescope time for this project. It's hugely expensive. And so I think the fact that they decided to participate is simply because there was this shared 
imagination that we thought was worthwhile to explore. For me, the, the shared value of this project is to create this scenario where we manage to have people interacting with each other and creating a meaning around this message. It's, it is possible to bring people from different fields and make them work together. And it was just wonderful to have these group meetings with people from the European space agencies and the radio observatories who wouldn't typically meet in a room. And I think we all gained something from this exchange. So I think everyone is really excited about the content of the message and the possibility of decoding it. It's only three people who know the content of the message. So everyone else is, well, they, no one knows what the, the message is. So I think this is part of the, the shared value of the project is the excitement around the possible content and what that will mean and how that will be interpreted. So there is also that playful part, which I think has an important role. And and who knows, maybe it will be interpreted over and over or the past few months or, you know, who knows. Joining us on this episode are Associate Professor Chelsea Haramia, scholar, editor and experimental poet Gregory Batts, and philosopher, musical artist and human rights advocate Jamie johnson Swartz, three members of the Assign in Space project. Together we will explore the ethical considerations surrounding the project and discuss the diverse relationships humans have with space. This isn't just a podcast. It's an invitation to embark on a thought-provoking journey where art and science intertwine in a thought experiment performed worldwide. So sit back and let's dive into the conversation with Chelsea, Gregory and Jamie. My name is Sabina Winters and I'm a philosopher of science and space. For more information, visit scientificimagination.org and assignin.space. Hi, my name is Chelsea Haramia. I'm a philosopher and I have two positions at the moment. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy at Spring Hill College. It's in the United States. And I also am a senior research fellow with the University of Bonn, working at the Center for Science and Thought on a project called Desirable Digitalization. And this is a grant project funded by the Mercator Foundation, and it is a joint collaboration between the universities of Cambridge and Bonn to work on the ethics of AI and finding ways to make AI more just and sustainable. So a sign in space is a global theatrical performance, this type of work that explores the intersections between art, technology, and space exploration. And so my role in the project is a member of the advisory team. And I also was tasked with composing a publication to help explain some of the background of the project, the goals, the methods, and things like that. And so on the advisory team, I worked with lots of other experts in both my discipline, philosophy, and other disciplines. We did a lot of bringing in our own expertise, listening to others' expertise and working to figure out 
a way to do this that was not only you know scientifically appropriate and artistically valuable, but also to do so in a way that that is appropriate for the scope of the project because it's global in scope the the impacts have the potential to be many and varied so we wanted to you know do what we could to minimize harmful impacts and you know maximize the artistic value of the project itself my name is gregory betts and i am an experimental poet and a professor of avant-garde in canadian literature at brock university in saint catharines canada Depending on how you count them, I am the author of about 22 books that explore some of the limits of experimental writing in Canada. So I write creative books and I produce scholarly books that track the efforts of especially avant-garde writers in this context in Canada, documenting how they've expanded the options and the opportunities for future generations. So I wear I wear a few hats for the project, but my primary role, I suppose, is spearheading the literary response to the project. I'm organizing a writer's workshop that's too cleverly called RETI, Writing in Response to Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And, you know, we're driven by that question. How does one write in response to extraterrestrial intelligence? What's amazing about Daniela's project is that suddenly we have something to respond to, like the conversation has already begun. So that's one that's one major element. I was also one of the five people on the message team who brainstormed and developed the actual message that was sent from Mars to Earth. I'm afraid I'm not allowed to talk about that, though. I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement with the European Space Agency. And they've got satellites, and I don't mess with people with satellites. My name is Jamie Johnson. I am an associate professor of philosophy at Wichita State University. My main sort of research connects with the ethics of space exploration. I have approached space from sort of many different areas in philosophy, ranging from philosophy of science to, to science policy to social philosophy and philosophy of disability. And in addition to being a, a professional philosopher, I'm also a musical artist and engage in sort of a lot of different kinds of creative projects. And I have a sort of album coming out very shortly. My first album, despite the fact that I've been writing songs since I was 10. I've written with space in mind. And there's a song on the album called Heartbreak Starshot. And actually, that, this is a very fitting song, actually, especially with Daniela's art projects, because I wanted to combine a real life, you know, love story with a joke about, you know, okay, well, what if people like downloaded themselves into those wafer satellites, they're going to be shooting out to Proxima with directed energy propulsion out of the breakthrough Starshot kind of thing, right? So like, what if that was how, what if that was the deal? You got to go to Proxima Centauri, but you had to be a downloaded brain on a wafer sat and you could only fit one per, per wafer. So the, the second half of the song kind of tells the story of, okay, we're now these wafer sats waiting in line to be shot to Centauri and mine misses, mine misses. Because if we're going to do this kind of mission profile, there will be, you know, misses. And if we're putting consciousness in, into these things, that's, that's a grave decision, it seems. So the song was just written to process, you know, unrequited love.
formerly I was there as an ethics advisor, much like Chelsea Harmia. But sort of more informally, I guess I was, I wound up being a, a sort of observer. And as a philosopher, even though I'm there as an ethics advisor, the philosopher in me, I mean, ethics is a part of philosophy, don't get me wrong. But philosophers are kind of like, I know systems engineers hate this metaphor, but we're kind of like systems engineers for systems engineering, as it were, or we're like conceptual engineers. And so we're always sort of asking whether the, the conceptual tools that we're employing in our work are the, the best ones. Have they been, you know, organized in ways that are conducive to realizing the objective that we're trying to reach or not? I think independent of the kind of, you know, artistic purpose and the more artistic engagement that a lot of people have had with it, I'd be hard pressed to find a better kind of you know, public education project for how radio astronomy works, right? Because I think, you know, th there's this sort of secondary effect that you kind of just have to learn a lot about the networks of radio astronomy observatory sites. And like just, you know, hearing people kind of talk through how they're selecting algorithms and things like this. I mean, what we're learning here is there are a lot of people that would try to help out in this situation, but also that we don't have a manual for it, right? So I think it's, you know, when you highlight just how big something is and how many people it takes to do something and how many different skill sets, independently of whether you've got, I don't know, like ethnic representation or that kind of diversity, what you're doing is highlighting the diversity of skill sets that are just you know, needed even for a project like this. So if this is what we need for a sign in space, imagine the complexity that would be upped if, you know, we get the non-human signal, right? So I, I think it kind of highlights how much work there is to do. And it, it's, it's pleasing to, to know there can be constructive comings together. And I think that's very helpful to, to get people interested in problem solving is to show them these really kind of, you know, enterprise crew communities working on problems. We don't necessarily need more STEM degrees, you know, we, we need, you know, support for the arts and for, for caring about people and things like this. And we need, you know, more perspective from, from non-STEM sources on these issues because we've seen what the STEM crowd has produced over the years. And what we keep learning is we need more than that. As you may recall, because you joined the live event or you listened to the first podcast episode of this series, the event of Assigning Space took place the 24th of May. That was the day when the signal was sent out from the fastness of space to the Earth. And since then, an incredible wave of curiosity and intrigue has washed over, with people from all over the world attempting to decipher the message meaning. The online community has become a buzzing hive of activity, with the project's dedicated Discord channel overflowing with ideas and interpretations. It's inspiring to witness the creativity on display. The discussions range from highly technical and scientific analyzations involving physics and astronomy to charming children's drawings, not to mention the poetry and even complete musical compositions inspired by the signal. It seems that the human imagination knows no bounds when faced with such an extraordinary event. Every corner of the artistic and scientific realms is being explored as people strive to unravel the secrets hidden within this cosmic communication.
Imagine an artist triggering hundreds of space and data scientists to drop everything and work around the clock to crack the code. But beyond that technical element, the art also includes the current and eventual responses by the wider public. From the cute alien drawings that have come in to the vast, almost dissertations about the implications of the project that we've already received. The art really emerges when we consider how humans, the entire human community that engages with this project, which is thousands upon thousands of people so far, how they are affected by the simulation of alien contact. So the boundaries of its cultural endeavor haven't been set yet. It's still happening in real time as we talk. And if you've heard uh, during the course of this message, I've already received about three different beeps from the Discord channel where new interpretations are pouring in. Following the, the media frenzy that surrounded this, this is a story that's appeared on CNN and the New York Times, as well as the CBC here in Canada. It's caught, it's caught the world's attention. There was a lovely profile in Wired magazine too. It's caught the world's attention and all of those ones track some of the technological achievements that are behind it, the, the sheer chutzpah of an artist harnessing the science in this way. Very few actually engage with the message itself. And I think part of that is because the message hasn't been fully decoded yet. So people are still dealing with their own natural impulses to the idea of extraterrestrials as opposed to what Daniela has actually put together here. So, so and I think that's probably true for my own experience as well. As an artist and as a literary scholar, I am completely outside of the technical efforts to decode the message. I've been following the discussion, but they are using a language that is completely, forgive me, alien to me. I have literally no point of access to it. On the other hand, while they're producing these, these attempts to decode the, the telemetry that's come down from this, this the satellite. I'm absolutely fascinated by the data visualizations that they've produced. These are rich, evocative images that contain pertinent information to the project, but that also have a mysterious aesthetic quality that reminds me of abstract art. And of course, also some of the contemporary digital art. During the live broadcast, Wael Farah of the Green Bank Observatory showed an image of the message arriving from Mars to Earth. Beautiful blue and green image, but you could see it had these yellow bands on the blue and green background. The yellow bands were the message. And I just, I love this image. I love it because red and green make yellow. So red is the missing color in the background. We have this blast of an unseen red that's arrived, that's the message. And it's created this disruption of the status quo, which is the normal noise of space. It's, it's striking and it's dramatic and it looks exactly like a hundred artworks from the 1960s. So it feels retro at the same time, even while it is completely new. And in fact, something exactly like what an alien message would look like. My experimental noise band, TZT, composed and performed our interpretation of that image. You could call it ekphrastic music, work in response to another piece of art. But I think we sort of have started talking about it as xenophrastic art, art composed in response to something alien. 
We wanted to imagine the sensual experience of a message arriving, just the, the jarring shock of it. So the other interpretation I really appreciated was in the workshop by Willie Lempert on Polynesian wayfinding. I love thinking about the different ways that humans imagine space. That different way of imagining space shapes and determines the remarkable things we're able to do. If we have experience with uh, an extraterrestrial message, for example, a piece of communication meant, meant for us, for us humans, from, from extraterrestrial others, that, that would be an experience we've never had before, right? It would be, you know, what, what is that like? We don't know what it's truly like. We can imagine, we can simulate, but what it's truly like, we don't know. And we, of course, don't know the details. And so it gives us this kind of new knowledge, and we call this phenomenal knowledge in philosophy, right? The, the knowledge of, of what it's like to be a subjective experiencer, experiencing something you've never experienced before. And so that has the power to change you depending on the circumstances. But there's another way that it could change us, and it could change how we experience being who we are. And if we're thinking about, you know, the collective of humanity, if there is such a thing, then it could affect how we human beings understand being members of humanity, right? Because what it means to be human right now is to be, you know, a species on this rock, in this solar system, standing in relation to a bunch of unknowns out there. But if we get a confirmed detection, we will all of a sudden become, you know, a species on this rock in the solar system who stand in relation to to a specific extraterrestrial other. And a sign in space is fiction, right? It's it's not a real signal. It's a simulated signal. And it's, you know, it's telling a story that is a fictional story. Just like, you know, all sorts of fiction is the product of our imaginations. So what does this tell us about ethics? Well, one of the things that fiction allows us to do is to is to have what we like emotions reactions feelings in the absence of belief so we read a story we watch a movie we know it's not real and yet we can feel things right we can understand things even though we the whole time are very aware that you know that maybe the characters are fictional or the plot is fictional or or what have you and so one of the things that i think fiction and imagination help us to do is to kind of access and analyze and come to greater understandings about what we can maybe call like ethical principles about what's valuable about what's truly good or truly bad, what's to be avoided, what's to be pursued. So we don't have to experience all these things in the real world to kind of come to understandings about what we should value or how we should behave because oftentimes fiction allows us and imagination allows us to access general principles that I would argue, you know, are real and, and matter even though the fiction that gets us to those general principles or ideas or attitudes is not real. And so one of the things that a sign in space can do is, you know, use our imagination to think about what it's like to experience an extraterrestrial detection. 
I mean, we all have our unique engagement with space. There's not just this one thing space that we all do this one thing care about, right? It, we all have our own perspectives and vantage points and pass through life. And although we might find ourselves in the same places a lot of the time, we don't necessarily come with the same values or with the same understandings of how those values get expressed in our behaviors and in things we create. You know, just creative projects, creative performances more generally. You're in control of the construction of the message, but you're not in control of the receipt or interpretation of the message. And there's only so much you can do to simulate the imaginations of others before you just kind of have to send the signal. But that doesn't mean going through the motions of creating a, a sort of response or, or thinking in advance, like, because what you do there is you activate a, a sort of framework that, that can hopefully adapt when the real signal comes, right? And, you know, I think, you know, the responses are going to be as unique as, as each human. And I think actually the biggest role of imagination here is being mindful of the imaginations of others, right? Because when you are thinking about other people decoding a signal that you are creating, it's their imagination that matters more in that situation than yours. And I think at the end of the day, I'm, you know, I exist in community with others, right? To me, the idea that there might be life out there is just an ordinary thought in my existence. And, you know, it would, it would please me to learn to, to kind of have the hunch confirmed. And so what would matter to me even more uh, would be how would my friends handle the news? Like, what would that do to the people I cared about? Would it be welcome? Would it be unwelcome? Would it lead to the world getting better or worse for them? Those oh, are the wow. things that, you know, I would care about. Until we actually encounter an alien civilization, even an extinct alien civilization, the whole thing is an exercise of the human imagination. Where does that leave us, though? In a way, it leaves us searching for confirmation of the limits of our own minds and technology. What are we searching for when we search the stars for aliens? And when we imagine aliens or try to think about other beings we've never seen or met on Earth? These are all projections of our desire for meaning, substituting mythic powers for cosmic powers, something out there to balance out our difference from all these other creatures on Earth. On the other hand, lots of scholars are turning their attention to all the radically different creatures on the earth and the enormous intelligence of these other beings. Even if we don't take the time to listen or learn about them, that act of stopping to listen to the trees talking, as Eduardo Kahn has encouraged us to do, is a similar leap of imagination that occurs with the SETI community. All the science fiction narratives that I've ever encountered I've never bumped into one that tells the story of an extraterrestrial intelligence coming to Earth and preferring to speak with the dolphins over the humans. We would be shattered. We would be absolutely shattered if that were to happen. And that's why we imagine it, because that involves a total destruction of our ego. Plus, we would have to reconcile the fact that we still don't know how to talk to dolphins. Like, how are we going to talk to aliens when we you know, can't even muster the energy to talk to the dolphins around us. Is that communication with extraterrestrial others, if we ever decide to 
respond to a signal that we receive is the fact that this kind of activity is going to necessarily be representative of humanity, of our planet, and potentially, therefore, could be misrepresentative, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's it's very easy to to do harm, either intentionally or unintentionally, when you're intending to represent entire groups. And and so an ethical concern that arises is how do we properly represent ourselves to the cosmos, right? Yeah. And how do we do so in ways that don't reinforce hierarchical assumptions about whose interests matters and whose don't? How to represent ourselves in ways that don't, you know, re- reinforce oppressive conditions or that take seriously the fact that what we assume to be, you know, maybe human values are often, you know, the values of, of a much narrower scope of very dominant groups of humans that don't actually represent all the, the kind of variety of, of values that, that humans hold across our planet and across, across time, because these kinds of space exploration projects are often the kinds of things that are intergenerational in nature, right? There are vast distances involved in space exploration, in interstellar communication, if that's something that we are engaging in. And so we can't just think about, you know, what do we humans here and now value or how do we best represent those of us walking around on Earth today? But how do we represent humanity itself, past, present, future, as well as yeah. the rest of our planet, you know, not just us, but all the, the the diverse species and many interesting things that, and potentially unique things that our planet has to offer. So, This is a short poem called Stars Poetica, and it has two parts. One of them is not written by me, um, but was actually the text that was included by then U.S. President Jimmy Carter in the 1977 Voyager 1. And I like this text, not as an epigraph, but as a source text for my poem, because I imagined it going out into interstellar space and being read by an extraterrestrial intelligence, and them using that as the basis for understanding human language. In other words, these are the characters they know of our of our alphabet. These are the these are the limits of language, of expressible thought. We are attempting to survive our time, so we may live into yours. We came upon a voyager with a golden record, soulful and virtuoso artwork sent to us. Suitor, your gift invited us. Our emissaries come in a faster plutonium monolith. Return its message home. This is a present from a small, distant world, a token of our sounds, our science, our images, our music, our thoughts, and our feelings. Literature, perhaps even more than film or any other medium, allows access to minds that are radically different from our own. Poetry is the art where everything matters. Every letter, every punctuation mark, every empty space 
is involved in the creation of meaning. So, well, so much of the world is overrun with excess. We are a completely, totally noisy planet. But poetry works with quietness. It works on a different time scale. And it starts with the presumption that everything means something. That's also true of space travel, where every ounce, every millimeter is measured precisely. And I do think the world could handle being a little more careful and perhaps a little less excessive. We listen on the hope of making contact with something completely different from ourselves. It seems to me such an act cuts right to the very heart of what the imagination is supposed to do.